Coming up, we're going to look back on the year that was, what lessons we learned, and what those lessons mean for 2020. And of course, we're going to make some predictions about the wild election year to come. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Kristen Roberts, Vice President of News for McClatchy, and joining me today are two of my very favorite people, Alex Rorty, our national political correspondent. Alex? I feel like it's the OGs this episode. It's the OGs We're this episode. We're back to the OGs all the way back in November when we first recorded our, and uh, it's our true. issue here. It's true, because sitting next to you is Adam Wolner, our politics editor from what state again? I can't ever remember. <laughs> Wisconsin. Don't I, haven't I told you guys that before? Oh, uh, I'll, I'll make sure to bring it up a couple times just to remind you uh, over the course of this episode. God, you're so lucky Wisconsin matters in 2020. You yeah, like a legitimate reason to talk about Wisconsin. Exactly. I, it could be the tipping point state. Maybe that'll be my my prediction. Although that's not a very very bold one. I'll have some hotter takes for the for the prediction. I hope you have better uh, stuff than that. that, that that's my that's my measured prediction. But I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna swing in the other direction as well. Oh God! All right, let's get to it. We are gonna spend this last podcast of 2019 talking through what surprising things we learned about voters, about campaigns, and about the realignment in American politics in the Trump era. And so I want to start I want to start with you, Alex, because I think you and I in particular started 2019 debating among the among this group. Right. About the Democratic Party, a Democratic Party that was struggling at that moment with a policy versus an identity approach to the primary season. And I feel like we are ending 2019 with a Democratic Party still struggling with a policy versus identity approach to the primary season. So. What do we know now that we didn't know then about how the Democratic Party was going to approach a monumental moment in American politics? Well, I, to me, when I sit back and look at the lesson from the Democratic presidential primary so far, is that even most, most of the people who are attempting to lead this party don't really understand it right now. It is a party in flux. It is a party that is changing. And everyone knows that. But how much it's changing, how much it's moving to the left, I, don't, I think people have really struggled to, to grapple with that. And I think we have seen that over and over and over again uh, in the presidential primary with possibly two exceptions that I think we're going to get to in a little bit. But when I, when I say that, I look at a party that – let's take Cory Booker, for example. Right? You know, in the wake of Donald Trump's election – Uh, There was all of this resistance energy. People were marching in the streets. And there was a sense that the liberalism was on the rise, the the sort of more cautious, centrist approach uh, that had dominated the mainstream of the party was no longer good enough. We have to move to the left. So you say like Cory Booker and not just Cory Booker, but Kirsten Gillibrand and Kamala Harris, they all sign up for single payer health care in the Senate. uh, They say they support that. And then when the time comes in 2019, to support your uh, to, to start their presidential campaigns, there they were again supporting a single payer health care system. Openly talking about whether or not private insurance has a role or a substantial role in our health care system right now. And with the benefit of hindsight, twelve months later, that was a mistake. You know, it was a, a, a misread of the electorate, and I would argue it's not just on health care, but it's on any number of issues where the instinct seemed to be from a lot of these Democratic politicians that they needed to move left and they needed to move left quickly. And that just wasn't the case. Now, to be clear, the Democratic Party is a much more liberal party than it was even three years ago. It is indisputable. And, And I think you even saw that in the 2018 midterms. I wrote about it extensively at the time that even the sort of median House candidate in a 
conservative area, right, Kristen, they supported gun control. They were uniformly supported abortion rights. It wasn't even a question anymore. You know, and they supported things like a $15 minimum wage, raising the minimum wage to $15, you know, that a few years earlier had been some kind of like bug-eyed Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. proposal. Now it's squarely in the mainstream of the party. So there's no doubt that they move left. But the question is, of course, it's always a question of degree. And I just see a, a party and, and maybe, you know, cut them a little slack. Like, the, the, you know, things have been dictated by this sort of activist online left in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, you know, you have- that's the thing of it. I mean, that's the real thing is that the party seemed to be taking a lot of lessons from Twitter. Right. right. Well, and, too and, many lessons. Too right, many. That's yeah, the and, that's the that's well, and that's you know it, you read a lot of the, the postmortems of Kamala Harris's campaign, and yes. that's one thing that a lot of people, I think, both in the campaign and outside the campaign, pointed to is that they were too concerned with trying to appease the you know the, the very outspoken people who are on Twitter constantly you know, tend to be very far to the left, and then they kind of end up misreading where the actual average Democratic primary voter is. And you just had, like, whether it was Booker or it was Gillibrand or Kamala Harris, like like you mentioned, and even to some extent Elizabeth Warren on, on health care in particular, you know, there seemed to be this this idea that they all wanted to prove their sort of liberal bona fides, they, that that was going to be critical to their effort to win the, the, the presidential nomination. And, and it was it was difficult for them because in some ways, like, say, Cory Booker, like Cory Booker is a liberal guy. You know, he's a liberal mm-hmm. politician. Uh, he was a liberal mayor of Newark. But he he's, you know, he, he's not like on the far left. He's not on the fringe right. um, in any way. And I think they struggled to to chart that that course. And I know, you know, there is some frustration, not even within the campaign, but in people who I think are sympathetic uh, to his campaign, a, a Democrat and I had coffee the other week, and they were talking about the frustration that she had that Cory Booker, who is liberal, was being reduced to the same kind of centrist Democrat as Amy Klobuchar. You know, that if you look at their agendas, there are very different things. Cory Booker wants to give every baby, basically, like he calls them the baby bonds that will then follow uh, them from from birth. It's like a radical idea, right? But he gets lumped in now, and even on this show, we talk about him as this centrist, more more angling for an electability argument than anything else at this point, despite the fact that he has these liberal policies, but nobody cares because everyone now, everything gets processed as whether or not you're a Bernie Sanders-style progressive democratic socialist. Yeah, Corey's Jeb. That's the problem. Right, right. And, you know, if you look at his, again, if you look at his actual agenda, you know, it's not like he's he's some old fogey in the Democratic Party, but things have moved so quickly. You even you could even go back to the start of this primary and people I think turned it like the apology primary at a certain point because <laughs> right. you had candidates like I Kamala Harris, that. Cory God, Booker. That seems so long ago. It yeah. was like a very, very, very long time ago. But they all had things in their record that they felt like they needed to address early on and because there were a lot of liberal critics, because the politics in the Democratic Party had changed in, say, like five years. That's how quickly things are moving. And I feel like that kind of set the tone for the whole primary where candidates are trying to catch up where the party is, trying to figure out where the party is, in some cases overcorrecting. And it's maybe in case why you, you haven't seen a lot of candidates break through right. in this race. And in the case of Kamala Harris, you know, that she. Uh, flamed out very memorably. Right. Trying to fact. trying to be, you know, everything to everyone. I think that's right. something Kamala Harris certainly was kind of fell into that trap. You could say the same for Cory Booker, Kristen Gillibrand, as you mentioned, you know, signing on to that uh, Medicare for all legislation and maybe not quite understanding exactly what Medicare for all means. I mean, I, I think we'll talk about 
healthcare a little bit later. But one thing I just wanted to uh, to say, you know, to kind of piggyback off your your good point, Alex, is that you know I think at the beginning of 2019 there were two very different sort of theories of the case for how to run a presidential campaign in, in, for the Democratic nomination. You know, you had Joe Biden, who actually made the argument very explicitly before he got in, saying, listen, you know, the party actually hasn't moved that far to the left in the years since Obama, right? Because there were all these questions about his, his past record and are you liberal enough to appeal to, to the Democratic electorate, you know, in the year 2019? And that was his argument. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side of that argument was, well, the party's actually moved really far to the left and very quickly just in the few years after Obama, and we need to, you know, kind of race to to uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of of the party because you know you look at you, you know in 2018 you know, some, some of the the rising stars of the party like you know the AOCs of the world who you know were you know you know even willing to embrace the democratic socialism label, and I think you know obviously you know with the benefit of hindsight and where we are now, I'm um, at the end of 2019. I, you know the answer I think is somewhere in the in the middle where the party is. Obviously, it has moved no, it to the isn't. left. No, it isn't. There's you, not you an average Democratic voter. And I think that's the problem that this party gets into is that they're looking for an average Democratic voter. And they say, "Okay, you know what? Our Democrats are actually this far Mm -hmm. to the left now. And it's different from. No, there has never been an average Democratic voter like there's not an average Republican voter. It is a it is a mix. And you need to decide what mix you're going to target to create to create the coalition you need to get elected. That's what the whole thing is about. And so. There, if you look at what Democrats would, what the Democrat would need to do to take the election away from Trump, they've got to win states where AOC could not get elected, mm-hmm. and that's the fundamental problem with 2019 for the Democratic Party is that, as we've all just said, they raced to the left because Twitter told them to go there, and they put in jeopardy their ability to get Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin. Right. These are the states that a Democrat needs to win for Trump to lose. I, I find it fascinating, Adam, to, to piggyback on your point. I mean, the two candidates who seem who arguably have done the best, um, according to the national polls anyway, in this race are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, who represent two the two different polls of the campaign right now, or at least the Democratic electorate, ideologically speaking. Mm-hmm. But they're the two candidates who seem to change the least. When they entered this race, of course, oh, there, have been some, there of course there are some modifications there. I mean, Joe Biden's agenda I've written about this year is far more liberal than, say, past Democratic right. nominees or even his own uh, policy agenda. But his approach is still the same. Right. It's it's that uh, he emphasizes electability. He talks about getting things done. He talks about working with Republicans. The approach is the same. And so it is with Bernie. He is the same politician that he was 30 years ago, as his supporters and his campaign like to point out over and over and over again. And I don't think it's coincidence. You know, neither of these guys might ultimately win the nomination. But again, as we sit here in December, despite their campaign seemingly going through tumultuous times in this race, both, again, are leading in the national polls. And I think it has something to do with the fact that they knew who they were. They know what they stand for. And they weren't trying to to calibrate and to try to grapple with the changing Democratic Party in the way that we saw other Democrats try and fail largely failed to do in this race right and and to circle back on on my point what i the point i was trying I mean, to when make, i rudely interrupted yeah <laughs> no, the point i was making right, right. and it, getting to that where I, you know i still think that there was more room i think than some of these other candidates anticipated in more of that center left lane which biden has sort of occupied as opposed to 
the the progressive lane where kind of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are running one because guess what it's really hard to actually outflank Bernie Sanders on the left like if you're Cory Booker Kamala Harris Kristen Gillibrand like good luck trying to paint yourself as more progressive than a democratic socialist but also that while the party certainly as a whole has moved to the left there still are a lot of voters who are you know a little bit more moderate you know, still are, are open to, you know, ideas such as the $15 minimum wage, you know, you know, maybe a public option for health care and not going all the way to, to Medicare for all. And Joe Biden, while he did certainly calibrate his positions and moved his agenda uh, to the left from when he was vice president and when he ran for president before, he knew he only needed to move so so far to the left. And he kind of s- staked out that ground where the Bookers, Harris's, Gillibrands of the world were just couldn't couldn't find their footing and where where exactly they fit in the modern Democratic Party. Adam, why are Democrats still obsessed with health care when, you know, it's a pretty compromised position for them? It's yeah, it's really been fascinating. And Alex and I have been talking about this in the newsroom all year, I feel like, you know, and just to, to really kind of step back here and go back to even when the Affordable Care Act was passed. I mean, it took Democrats decades to get any sort of health care reform done. You know, not since, you know, Lyndon Johnson was anything really at this level achieved. You know, Bill Clinton couldn't do it. So many past uh, Democratic candidates running for president, you know, couldn't couldn't uh, you know even get into the position to get this done? Uh, it was a, a big effing deal, as uh, <laughs> as a certain uh, former vice president and current presidential candidate stated. And so, and and they paid a huge political price, obviously, for that in the years to come. In in the 2010 midterms, in, in 2014, I mean, the, the issue of Obamacare just really haunted Democrats for for years. After that, cost them a lot of seats, uh, both in Congress and and in the states. They finally are able to turn that issue into an advantage in 2018, and Democrats did a really nice job with their midterm campaign of running on the issue of Republicans want to take away protections for people with pre-existing conditions by repealing the Affordable Care Act. They were able to run on those those pocketbook issues, you know, a very sort of narrowly tailored message that wasn't about let's move to single payer health care or let's move to Medicare for all. We're just gonna you know make sure that people are able to get the care that they need. And then Democrats' first move in 2019 is let's let's relitigate the whole healthcare <laughs> debate all over again. After we, you know, it took us 10 years to finally gain an advantage on this, but we want to talk about it again. We, you know, we want to talk about moving to single payer healthcare, Medicare for all, which, you know, is not broadly popular. Uh, among the the American electorate and wasn't even broadly popular within the Democratic Party until recently. And now it's just interesting to me that that has become really the defining issue for what makes somebody progressive. Um, You know, that's what, you know, Pete Buttigieg now is is getting hit on, you know, his sort of changing positions or perceived changing positions on health care. Elizabeth Warren, it's even tripped her up, someone who, you know, I don't think many people would question her uh, progressive bona fides. But basically every debate has started off with with a, a long discussion about health care, and it, it could very well come back to haunt them uh, in, in, in the general election if if the, their standard bearer is, is someone who supports single-payer health care or, or Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know. If you were to draw up after the 2018 midterms what the, the plan of attack looked like against President Trump, how do Democrats, how are they going to campaign against him? What is the message going to be? I think a lot of Democrats assume that you just take what they did in 2018 and you copy it in 2020. You talk about removing protections for pre-existing conditions, at least trying to. And you talk about the tax law and how it was a giveaway for the rich. And maybe there is still something left with the tax law to, to exploit. And maybe there's still something left with the health care. But there's no question that it is in some form or fashion going to be compromised by this discussion of single payer health care. And I know, you know, look, Republicans tried to make it an issue in 2018. They actually ran a lot of ads just 
accusing Democratic House candidates of supporting single-payer health care. They didn't. Right. They didn't. They ran the ads. They didn't work. But look, it, it, things start to change when, when people see that the Democrats themselves are talking about it. And if anyone, anyone who has tuned into a Democratic debate, that's, that's, I mean, that has taken up a, a hugely disproportionate share of the time, right? They have talked about Medicare for all. It is in the, the bloodstream, so to speak. And I don't think we, we really know what the effect will be on the 2020 campaign, but we know that it's going to be trickier now, I think, for the Democratic nominee and therefore for all of the Democratic House and Senate candidates also running in 2020 to make the case, to, to make the health care case, to try to press the advantage against Republicans. And, it, and it's a tricky position. I, I, you know, I, go, I think, you know, Adam, the point that you are making about the, the sort of general election effect and the point I would be making about the primary are connected, mm-hmm. but you just had a party that seemed like it was so dissatisfied with itself that it needed to relitigate a lot of issues and it didn't have the sort of larger political consequences in mind when it did. You know, it, 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 people are really interested in the substance of this, too. And and healthcare is such a visceral issue. Uh, and you see it that it, it continues to pop in polls as the most important issue for Democratic voters. And, you know, they just were not satisfied with leaving uh, well enough alone. And in particular, I think a new mindset that compromises that were necessary with Republicans, politically necessary Republicans, Mm -hmm. that no longer works for us. It no longer works for us on the substance, and it no longer works with us on the politics either. Whether or not they're right about that, that is the belief. And Obamacare, for even for all the achievement that it was for Democrats, you know, the biggest expansion of the welfare state in a generation, right, it was still seen as a compromise because in many ways it was, you know, it, it was a, a system that at least w- one point was designed to appeal to more moderate or even Republican leaning voters. And so, look, that that's how you get here. And, and I think the, the the effect on the general election is huge. I would just mm-hmm. say if we're going to flash forward, maybe this counts as a little early prediction. I don't know. But if a Democratic president in 2021 works with a Democratic Congress to try to pass a single payer health care system <laughs> right. in any form or fashion, the electoral results could be like nothing we've seen. Like a single term presidency? It could. Boy, and, this, and this is why the Joe Bidens of the world are kind of reminding people like, hey, like, yeah, the single payer health care, Medicare for all sounds great. But how are you going to get that through a Republican Senate? Are there other policy positions that... The serious contenders have taken in 2019 that will hurt well, this in the is, general. This is a really good question. I wanted to bring up. I still think one of the more remarkable moments of 2019 was that first Democratic debate in Miami. Two nights, of course, and you had everything in Miami is remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> it's their pro Miami bias here on the on the podcast. What I remember most. Those debates. People were talking about single payer health care. There was, of course, Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden on busing. But the thing that stuck with me the most that maybe has the greatest effect on 2020 was talking about decriminalizing yeah, illegal border crossings. And, you know, look, it wasn't what just on health care. Mm-hmm. They the the party and it seemed like at least in the moment that everyone on stage both nights, they all were like, Yes, this is a good idea. You know what? Yeah. We should we should decriminalize this. And it it's a huge Move to the left on again. If you're talking about a, a an issue of visceral importance to some people, and it's and, and look, immigration is a a tricky issue for Democrats to begin with. There is a segment of the electorate that the Democratic Party will never be able to reach on immigration. That Donald Trump holds a special appeal with his hardline stances, but there is also a more moderate, more more suburban, if you will, electorate that that does have kind of middling views or moderate views on immigration. They welcome immigrants, but they want border security. 
And when you start talking about decriminalizing the, the border crossings, I think that the message is, is not a great one. The politics are not great about that. And I, I just remember even in the run-up to the second debate, I just called a lot of moderate Democrats. Kristen, you, you, you know this well because you always get reporters who write these kinds of stories. And what is it? A lot of the quotes are on background, right? A lot of blind anonymous <laughs> quotes. Well, when I reported this story, the moderate Democrats, I think perhaps because the, the, the apprehension was so high after the first debate, heading into the second debate, they were they were on the record saying we got to stop this. This is mm-hmm. this is this is crazy. In so many words, you had guys like Bob Buckhorn, the former mayor of Tampa, so he's certainly familiar with immigration issues, just sounding the alarm that he was worried about what he was saying. Now, I think there was even an acknowledgement among the Democratic candidates, like, whoa, we don't necessarily need to do that because we haven't seen it in the subsequent debate. No, we right. have not. It hasn't come up. But it was this – to me, and I'll connect this back with the, the point I was making at the top of the show, you just had a Democratic feel that really didn't have a feel for their own electorate right now. And, and their right to be – to think that they're, they're changing, the electorate's changing a lot. It's in flux. It's not easy. But you see in a moment like that where, where people are kind of just like lurching in the dark trying to figure out what are the positions that are going to appeal to Democratic voters – and you get a situation like that, and they're all focused on the primary, but there are general election consequences. Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, that's certainly going to come back to haunt them, especially because you know they they got the, the hand raising, you know that you know I, that's definitely going to come up in some ads in 2020. And I think another issue that came up at the debate that I think could potentially come back to bite Democrats is, is the mandatory gun confiscation. Now that isn't something that was as broadly shared am- among the field, and it was certainly cha- championed by uh, Beto O'Rourke towards the end of his campaign. But I. Huh? It, <laughs> oh. Yeah, remember, remember him? Man, man, speaking of predictions that may have been wrong about oh, we'll uh, get there. 2019. We'll get there. Um, but, you know, even though he was really the one that, that was champion, championing that, I still think that's something that, you know, Republicans are going to try and use against whoever the Democratic nominee is in Yeah, that's in, a toxic in, in issue, man. That's a toxic issue. Let's do a quick round robin on the worst predictions at the top of 2019. And I'll go first on yeah. this one oh, okay. because oh, I'm, I'm I, had a, I had a bad one. I had a big fail. Okay. Kamala Harris was the one to be. Oh, yeah, you're right. I thought she was the nominee. And I thought that for years. I thought that for years. You're actually, when I got to McClatchy in 2017, I think it was one of the first stories I wrote for you was about Kamala Harris and teeing up her presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. So, your what, turn. Well, I, let me, let's, let's just stick with that for a moment. Where do you think you went wrong? And in fairness, it wasn't just you. I think it was a, not lot, just a lot you. of people no, got, no, got no, so I actually still, <laughs> the reason I thought she was a great candidate, and, and she is a great candidate on paper, right, is, is because I believe this is an identity election. I don't think it's a policy election. I think it's an identity election. And I also think she is a moderate in an election where the Democrats, to beat Trump, need a moderate. And so her inability to translate her own beliefs into messaging was a huge fail on the part of her campaign. She was never able to adequately say, this is what I believe in, and I'm not going to chase the field to the left or whatever that might be. And so there had been a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for her as a candidate in 
late 2018 and early 2019 among the donors, which is the group of people who really mattered at that phase of the contest. And then right after that Miami moment, where she very effectively went after Joe Biden, who was her main competition in that moment, she couldn't then replicate. She couldn't replicate. It was a huge messaging and communications fail on her team's part, I think, that doomed her candidacy, right? And and that's what donors saw. I think the donor class, more than anyone, is focused on electability. They want to put their money behind someone who can defeat Donald Trump. And for a second, they did think it was her. And when she couldn't take the momentum that she generated from Miami and, and maintain it, they said... It's not her. Interesting. Um, so my, I think, failed prediction of 2019, I really thought the Democratic primary was going to be a lot more tumultuous. Uh, and by that, I mean that week to week, month to month, we would see more candidates rise and fall, more candidates have a moment, an audition, mm-hmm. if you will, before the wider Democratic electorate. And, and that has not been the case at all, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, there are some exceptions. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is the one. You know, He went from obscurity uh, into the top tier of this race. He did it in almost a, a sort of two-pronged fashion, both in the spring and then in the fall. And he now sits as, a, as one of the leading contenders in the race. But I think he is, he is an exception. Otherwise, we have seen this race almost stay frozen in carbonite, if you will. It is Joe Biden at the top. With between, say, 25 to 30 percent, at least nationally, you see Bernie Sanders trailing behind between 15 and 20 percent. Elizabeth Warren has risen from, you know, she rose from about 5 percent to 20 percent and now has dropped down to about 15 percent again. And it's been a slow process. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't seen with the, the one exception is with the Kamala Harris moment that we saw after the Miami debate that seemed to wash out almost as quickly as it came. A few months later, she was back, I think, in single digits. And she wasn't able to arrest the slow decline from there. It was interesting to me because, you know, the presidential races that I have covered the closest have been the 2012 GOP primary and, say, the 2016 GOP primary. And in those races, you just had candidates seemingly rising and falling every week, particularly around the debates. Um, It seemed like in 2012, if you remember, we had Herman Cain, Newt Gingrich. All of these candidates, you know, seemingly had these moments that we had to spend a month digging into their background, mm-hmm. and as quickly as we got those stories out, they seemed to to disintegrate and the uh, the electorate. And you to, to take the Democratic debates that hasn't happened at all. Again, you have one Colin Harris moment, but really there's been very little ability for other candidates to to break through, and it's really surprised me. And I and I think you know, and I have a lot of questions about why the Republican primaries are different than the, the Democratic primaries. Is it about the candidates? Is it about the voters? Um, that Republican voters maybe because Fox News has such a commanding position that people are all watching the same thing and therefore any of the slightest variations in performance and the way that the candidates are covered can have bigger ripple effects. I, I don't know. I'm purely speculating. But to really be blunt, and I, a lot of Democrats and I think other reporters agree with this, like the Democratic primary has been boring. That, that, I mean, there it is. It has been boring. There have been interesting policy developments to talk about. The kind of state of the Democratic Party, like we talked about on the show, is interesting to talk about. But there really isn't a lot of action between the, the, the candidates. And I think that that has been very surprising for me. 
Uh, and I'm really curious if it changes. I'm really curious if it changes. You're going to be surprised that I say this, but I actually think boring is a little bit nice in politics right now. Oh, the sure. fact that this, sure. that this group of Democrats has been talking about policy issues and substance is refreshing. And in fact, so much of their discourse on stage has been more civil yeah. than we've seen in Absolutely. politics in a long time. And I know it won't continue as the field gets smaller, and I know we won't see it in the general. But I think we should take just a moment to, That's a to good point. I mean, the, the, the last that. debate, the lack of sort of sniping between the candidates was really su- surprising to me. So if people are bored by right. that and <laughs> yeah. aren't watching because of it, right. then shame yeah. on us. Right. 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 Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. we all say we want more civil yes. dialogue in America. Well— Right, and 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 if and if they if that's if they're looking for uncivil dialogue, you know, they can just you know turn wait to, for the to, general. Right, well, wait for that, or they can just turn to the you know impeachment hearings if if that's what they're they're oh, looking fine. for. Fine. <laughs> what did you get um, wrong, or what was wrong? So I think one thing that I got wrong is that I sort of expected Bernie Sanders to just sort of fall by the wayside, kind of throughout 2019. You so, are a member of the corporate media. So yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, corporate chill. So at the beginning of 2019, I thought that because one, I, you know, I just thought, listen, it's going to be a really crowded field, a lot of talented candidates. The party is moving so far to the left. It's just going to be a lot more difficult for someone like Bernie Sanders to stand out. He's going to seem like old news. There's going to be all these fresh faces. He can't just simply be the anti-Hillary candidate anymore. Obviously, he's stuck around in the top tier for for uh, the first half of the year and then you know kind of the second half of the year when Elizabeth Warren started to rise seemed like you know she was starting to pass him in the polls Bernie Sanders had a heart attack you know I kind of thought listen I think you know this is sort of, this could be the end of the road for him either because of health concerns or just because Elizabeth Warren has now kind of become the progressive standard bearer in the race but against all odds he is still a top tier candidate and in a lot of polls now is back up to, to second place so I've um, been really actually you know impressed by his campaign, how they've been able to harness their their core supporters and sort of keep them intact, still raising a ton of money. They're um, investing a lot of resources, not only in the, the first four early states, but they're really ahead of a lot of campaigns in, in the Super Tuesday states and some of the bigger states to come in March. I think that they are really well positioned now to, to make a run all the way to the convention, if that's what they, they choose to do. So uh, I think that the fact that Bernie Sanders has um, kind of maintained his position as sort of the the number one progressive candidate and is you know c- kind of uh, risen back up to that second place in the race is not something I would have expected to to happen if you talked to me in January and even if you talked to me in probably like September or October. All right, so let's flip forward, and rather than getting you guys to tell me something I don't know, I want us to do some responsible <laughs> twenty twenty. Predictions. What is responsible? What does that mean? What is responsible? I mean, it should. Here's what it means. It means it should be grounded in reporting, in facts, in data analysis. Mm -hmm. It should Mm -hmm. not be your kind of shoot from the hip (laughs) bullshit. Okay. Mm. Don't like just reach into the sky and grab something nutty. It Uh should be based on your understanding of. The things that are driving the electorate in this election cycle, whatever crappy polling you guys like to use, because I know that you are obsessed with <laughs> any, that, any but also an understanding of demographic trends, etc. Sure. Okay, sure. so y'all go, choose. All Let's right. go first. Alex, you, Alex, go, you go. go. All right. So uh, I think that by September or October of of next year of 2020, that some of the Democrats, but I think particularly operatives or strategists or people who pay close attention, uh, say who are active on Twitter, are going to reconsider Hillary Clinton. I'm not talking about as a nominee. I'm talking about 
her campaign in 2016 that she was seen as a uniquely flawed candidate in 2016. And my prediction is that near the end of this general election process in 2020, people will understand that it was less about her than just how general elections are run and how polarized we are in 2020. That her personal flaws that we have spent endless amounts of time talking about, that people stipulated, oh, Republicans have been talking about her for 30 years, and this is why that she has a, a such a weakness with so many voters. I think all of it's overstated. Um, I think people will come to see it as overstated because, taking a little while to get to the point here, but because I think a lot of that is going to be true. The next Democratic nominee, regardless of who they are, there are going to be a set of uh, personal foibles that people will fixate on and dwell on. There will be things in their past uh, that will be seen and conservative media will be hyped endlessly as scandals, whether they are or not. And the candidate will be seen as, as weak. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to lose. I'm not saying that they're going to lose. Kristen, you and I have a, a long-running disagreement uh, that has also appeared on this podcast about who wins the 2020 election or how it sets up. But look, the electorate in America— Let, in Let's just be clear about this. You're the only one who has made a public prediction on the 2020 election. Are you, you're saying you're not. What, what what is your prediction? We're not. I, I don't play in that game. That's <laughs> okay. not a game that I no, play. When did when did you make your public prediction? At the well, very beginning. At the well, very beginning I, of I the relaunch I, of Beyond the Bubble. I said I said Donald Trump has a top. Yeah, I don't know if he actually okay. predicted you. I think that's wrong. We're gonna have to go back to the yeah, table. Go now. To the tape, yeah. We're gonna go to the table now. But here's what else we're gonna do on the tape. I'm gonna take this thing that you just said, which is crazy pants, and I'm gonna cut the clip of it. And every time I see you, I'm gonna play it for you. And then, Why do you and then in December so of 2020, I'm going to make you write a story about it. Okay, oh, so okay. so explain your disagreement with this. Do you do you think that we're going to in October of next year we're going to sit and say Warren or Buttigieg or Biden or Sanders, boy, they're just you know look how strong how much stronger they are than Hillary. Look how Hillary look how Clinton lost the. I don't want to. I don't want to spend this. Con- I don't want to spend this podcast talking about Hillary Clinton. I really do. So I'm going to say. I'm going to give you one sentence, and then I'm really going to move on. And we, if you want, you and I can do a separate podcast. It can be like a special <laughs> like on Hillary Clinton. Notice. We should do it. We uh-huh. should do. It. We'll do a special on Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton lost the election because generally people in the Democratic Party underestimated how much the American people dislike her. It wasn't about what kind of campaign she ran. It wasn't about her policy positions. It wasn't about whether she was a good candidate or not. It was a general disdain that people have for her, period. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to have to let, let me Let me finish. I'll just let me quickly finish <laughs> my point. I just don't think that the difference between the next Democratic Union, maybe they're a little bit more popular than Hillary Clinton, but it won't be by much. That's just how polarized. That's just how general elections work in modern America now. Great, Adam. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay out of this. Um, <laughs> it's probably, it's probably <laughs> well, wise. I was gonna have a really hot take that 2020 was gonna be the last year that Iowa votes first, but I. I don't know if I don't think I have enough. Too to spicy. Actually. I think it might be a little too spicy, and we won't actually know that until 2024. Such a nerd. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do love the primary calendar, but I, I actually I do think there's actually this. That's more of just my my gut prediction. I don't really have. It's not a responsible. It's not a responsible prediction, a responsible prediction but I in I, I would not be surprised if in 2024 a different state kicks us off. But no, to, but to look ahead to the general election, 2020 is finally going to be the year where Arizona is a premier battleground state not I wisconsin th- this is a, well wisconsin, wisconsin. I, wisconsin wisconsin is going to be 
the, the tipping point state. But that's not, I mean, that's not really a very bold prediction. But I think Arizona is going to be right up there with it. I think Arizona is going to be more competitive than Florida. It's going to be more competitive than Ohio and, and Iowa. It, it could even be more, if I, you know, if I really want to stretch this, I think it could be more competitive than Michigan and Pennsylvania. The way the demographic trends are turning, you look at the, the, the way that the results went in, in 2018, the, the attention that, that the Trump campaign is already starting to, to, to pay to, to Arizona, I think should, should, uh, is, is a telltale sign that they think it's going to be very competitive. I know, I, you know this has been uh, a prediction I think that's been made every presidential election cycle for the past 20 years or so. It seems that, oh, you know, this is finally going to be the year for, for Arizona and, you know, to a lesser extent, Georgia and Texas. But Arizona, I think, is is uh, going to uh, finally emerge as as one of the, the top tier battlegrounds. I think you're right. I think it's a really smart prediction. I think it's a Thank really you. smart prediction. My turn. So my prediction is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. Here it is. I think 2020 is going to be the most propagandized election in American history. I think it's going to be fueled by deliberately misleading and false narratives on both sides and I think that's going to come before the Macedonian bots and the Russian information warfare campaign has even gotten underway. We're already seeing it. The campaigns are already seeing it. And no one is ready for it. No one is ready for the sheer scope of the fiction that is going to be challenging fact in 2020. And if people aren't prepared to stress test the information they're reading and hearing on television and on websites, then we are in for a a bad time in 2020. So I am begging people who are listening, I'm begging you guys in this room, read a lot, question a lot, and read stuff you disagree with. And subscribe to your local newspaper. Subscribe Hashtag to subscribe local. Yes. Subscribe local. Yes. All right, let's get to the final section. Who should our listeners be following? Which local reporters are crushing it? Well, I will go first. And given that Adam just said that Arizona is going to be a critical swing state in 2020, uh, I would suggest everyone follow Dan DeWicke. Um, he's the Arizona Republic's national politics editor. He is active on Twitter. He is very good on Twitter. It's where I get a lot of my Arizona news and have for years. Uh, you can follow him. Very simple. It's at D-A-N. N-O-I-C-K-I. All right, I'm going to go with a, a local uh, public radio shout-out. Uh, Casey McDermott, a uh, reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Obviously, New Hampshire, uh, very important in, in the, the primary, but also will be in the general election, so she will be a critical follow over the course of the next year. I'm going to do something different. I had um, sworn that we were going to do all local. I'm going to do one local. I'm also going to do somebody who works for a national publication but in a local bureau. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going with Patty Mazay. Our dear Patty Mazay, formerly of the Miami Herald, now for the New York Times, based in Florida. She is a tremendous political reporter and understands the Florida environment as well as anybody. You're going to want to watch what she has to say and what her reporting shows to figure out where Florida is shaping up. So the combination of Patty Mazay and, and um, Smi- our own Smiley from the Miami Herald will give you a really good view of how Florida is going to vote. Super, super local. I'm going with Daniel Bice. He is a political investigative reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Very easy to follow at Daniel Bice. See, we had had to get some some Wisconsin in there. Yeah, absolutely. We had to get some Wisconsin in there. So that's it. Thank you to you guys. Thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you to our listeners. Please check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, 
please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next year.